Good late morning, Erin. How are you? I'm good. How about yourself? I am tired today, but that's my usual um, go-to answer these days. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that for sure. So you're eating an omelet. That looks delicious. Uh, like <laughs> I love an omelet. I, I'm an omelet all day person. Any time is good omelet time. So I had eggs and a pork chop for breakfast. I'm really going for the protein early in the morning thing. I see that. I feel like you've said that before with a pork chop. Yes. I love porks and egg chop or a bleh, bleh, porks and eggs like sunny side up where they're real runny and you dip your pork chop into it. So good. Um, it's Thanksgiving week. So interesting. Is it? It is Thanksgiving week. Yeah. yeah. But this episode is going to come out on Thanksgiving day. So we hope everyone has a wonderful, healthy, happy holiday. And that if you're part of the infertile world, that great aunt, I don't know, Susan, give you any unsolicited advice today. That is our hope for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so today on the podcast, we have one of the most wonderful men I have ever met in my life. Um, his name is Nate Schweigert, and I've known Nate for a very long time now. Um, his family actually grew up very close to my husband's family, and I know one of Nate's siblings very well. We used to work together, and yeah, I'm just really excited to have him here with us today. He has, he's so eloquent and what we talk about, I think is really important. And yeah. What do you think, Erin? I so enjoyed talking with Nate. And I think I would like to add that I find that he's a fascinating character. I think that Nate has, I mean, like you said, he's eloquent. It's so true. And he has this really fantastic, kind of renaissance man, intellectual, spiritual depth that is uncommon in a lot of the men where I live. And, but if he was on a TV show, I would watch him and I would be interested in how he spends his days and his time and what books he's reading. And I mean, he's a great character. And so having that conversation with him, I really enjoyed it. And looking at the artwork and all the stuff that was happening when we were talking with him, I thought, oh my gosh, I want to hang out with him. I want to go to his house. I bet he cooks a great duck. Like I just, he's the kind of person that I think is really fun to imagine because he's such an interesting mashup of characteristics. So I love that. So Nate is an aspiring hospital chaplain currently getting his master's in spiritual and pastoral care. Um, he grew up in the church, but realized he was gay at 11 years old. And it has been a long road for him to learn to love himself and care for himself in the ways that the churches and the communities in the late 90s and early 2000s couldn't. He would love to have children someday. Um, and yeah, we just talk quite a bit about his life and his experiences being someone of deep spirituality and his path forward, how he got here today. Also, Nate is a fantastic artist. I didn't even mention that, but badass artist. Um, so yeah, we dive very deep on spirituality and reproduction and politics and religion and all the things that kind of make up the underbelly of infertility. So I think you guys will enjoy. today to have a wonderful human being here with us, Nate Schweigert. And we're going to get kind of into the nitty gritty of faith, fertility, IVF, inclusivity, all those things. And we're just excited to have Nate here to discuss all those really important topics that aren't often 
reported, I think, in regular fertility media. So welcome, Nate. Um, Thank you. Yeah, um, and we'd love to hear a little bit about you and your journey and how you became here today, essentially, your background, your education, your ministry, and anything else you'd love to include and want our listeners to know about. Yeah. Uh, the wonder of how I came to be here in this moment. Um, yeah, I grew up uh, heavily involved in the church. Um, my kind of my title to get started is that I'm an aspiring hospital chaplain. And so it's been a long road to get to there. So a little bit about my upbringing um, is that I was heavily involved with church. Um, and but at 11, I realized that I was gay. And so there was a bit of uh, dissension there naturally, um, trying to figure out existence at a young age. Um, and so I was a missionary, tried to figure everything out and do and be the best and right person that I thought society wanted me to be. Um, but that came with a bit of cutting parts of myself off rather than fully integrating all of who I am, which I came to realize later um, via physical pain in my body and uh, emotional outbursts and all types of different uh, symptoms that told me that the way I was living was not healthy or right. And coming from a doctrine or a teaching that taught me that following Christ or God would be liberative and freeing and connecting me more to myself and to others, I found that none of that was true uh, if I was to leave my sexuality behind. So that has been kind of more recent past five or so years that I've been reincorporating all of who I am. And, uh, and that has brought a lot more life uh, to me, more uh, empathy and availability for relationship with others um, and has pushed and created a passion in me to um, to meet people and their hardship because walking through that alone for 15 years was um, very, very difficult. So a lot of my work surrounds um, shame, uh, inclusivity, uh, welcoming the ostracized parts of ourself or the ostracized people in society. I think those are one and the same, uh, just a different representation. and. I'm also an artist, so a lot of my work um, and musings and frustration has come out through um, painting and writing as well. So that's kind of where I'm at today, um, painting, writing, and uh, meeting with people um, often in difficult moments, but sometimes uh, to bring out the celebratory and happy parts of their life as well. That's really, really beautiful. And I mean, what a journey that you've been on already. And you're so young. I mean, that's a lot. <laughs> Feel like that's a it's a really interwoven web and path that you've already created there's a lot to unpack there yeah definitely <laughs> so i would love to hear what your thoughts are just like off the cuff how does it feel for you when you think about fatherhood or the potential of that and fertility treatments and this is a lot to unpack i'm saying a lot of things and <laughs> inclusivity for the lgbtq plus group like how how does that feel for you how do you reconcile both of those worlds and what does that feel like yeah it can be difficult uh and it kind of depends on the sphere in which i find myself I think generally in the norm normative world and by normative i mean the cis hetero patriarchy and name <laughs> it that has become a norm for us uh whether through christocentric belief um or just the natural unfolding of the history of the united states um which often those two are intertwined um that i feel as though i start on a back foot often with those who follow more of a normative understanding of fam familial structure um but i am as i mentioned earlier trying to find a way to proactively rather than reactively understand my life um, or an inspired way of existing rather than a reactionary way of existing. So when I think of fathering, I get very excited. Um, I think I, I, I would love to obviously have a partner to have a better structure or um, time and space to care well for a child. Um, but a little bit about me, I'm volunteering with Big Brothers Big Sisters currently, um, kind of as like a step towards understanding what does it look like to mentor and care for a youth uh, in today's society. Um, 
specifically one who has probably, in most most cases in mind as well, uh, a need for more uh, connection and care as their parent is uh, unable to either financially, emotionally, um, just whatever's going on in their life. And so that has been a bit of a gift to me to understand just a queer person in relationship and in care and in love, nurturing of a child, how that has already um, shaped a bit of his understanding of the world. Um, just to be able to share some of my story and my life in a way that's not centered on shame or indecency, um, these these frameworks through which it seems society wants to place on queer people, um, that we are vile, overly sexual, um, fill in the blank. Um, I think we all understand what norms have come about. Um, and to realize those are not true, um, because often it's easy to internalize the eyes or the, the voices of the what I would call the oppressor and not to learn and to live from within. And so those relationships with my uh, little brother, uh, things like that, my nieces and nephews, um, even little things like painting my nails and then wondering like, well, why do you paint your nails? Like only girls are supposed to do that. And my response is, well, then how did the paint get on my nails? <laughs> <laughs> Which is to say that we can do anything we want and there's not a, uh, these concepts of masculinity, femininity, um, and as they relate to sexuality, you know, you hear the ideas of it should be a male and a female because they have feminine and masculine and those are a perfect pairing. And to me, I say like, oh, there's both within me. So how feminine and masculine are both and all in between is within my own singular entity. So who is to say that my partner will not be a perfect match of the areas that I am lacking in and helpful for for parenting in the same way that whether you're embodied as a female biologically and a male biologically that doesn't say anything of your essence that's kind of where i've arrived at it's like there's an undercurrent of existence that has nothing to do with the tangible realm that is paramount to parenting and to caring for another being um, and a lot of times queer people have had to do a lot more of that work because they've had to understand the systems that exist and how to navigate those. And so for someone who's being adopted, maybe even, they also are going to have problems with feeling unwanted, or they often have that internal, I was given up. Um, and what about my parents? And a lot of queer people also have that understanding. It almost seems like a bit of a match made in heaven to, to pair people in need of adoption with queer parents, but all of that to say, there's a lot of hurdles for queer people to, to jump, to feel ready, to be supported, um, and to prepare themselves what, for the, probably the eyes and the, the gossip and the talks, you know, of other kids, parents, and all of the people around them that may look down on, mm -hmm. especially here in the South, you know, I, I'm speaking from a social location of a queer person in the South, um, raised in the church. Um, I also in the Bible Belt. Bible Belt, um, also with a lot of privilege and a lot more comfort than maybe a black person that's queer um, in the South. But understanding that my social location is obviously going to shine bright in this conversation because there's no other place for me to speak from. Well, we just went right to like the the punchline with that. I mean, it's so you articulate things so love, you know, so beautifully. And I think there, I mean, I think we can look around and see plenty of cis hetero couples that are very imperfect pairings. <laughs> Although, right, like this is, you know, this is the natural way, quote unquote. Um, but it it's, I don't know, I think sometimes because of the ease and finding coupling in that spectrum. People don't have to try that hard. They don't have to do so much work. They're not so seeking. Uh, and I just think it's interesting to talk about it the way that you're talking about it. Like really, you know, when you talk about your essence and seeking out the parts of you that you feel need pairing, like it's just such a beautiful perspective on coupling at all. 
Um, I'd also like to go back in time a little bit because I'm so fascinated about, you know, you mentioned that at 11 years old, you had realized, you know, that your sexuality was unlike what was being broadcast to you was this is normal and this is how we behave. And you, it sounds like you just sort of separated from that, left some of that out of your life. I'd love to know a little bit more about what that actually looks like Um, and or in the desire to re-engage those two things and to bring spirituality like back into your life in such a profound way. How do you do that? Is that seeking a, a church that has a certain belief system? Is that ultimately sort of creating your own sanctuary and making it you know, making one that suits you, like, how do you, how do you do that? How do other people find a path to Christ when it feels like all the doors are closed? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the answer to like, the younger years of my life is a little sad. (laughs) And by a little, I mean a lot. Um, uh, The answer back then was hide. I mean, I spent my entire youth hiding, um, which will make me teary-eyed, which is a part of why I care so deeply, um, especially about conversations about, quote, grooming, um, things like that that are so prevalent today, because the exact opposite has been happening for millennia um, of of grooming queer kids to, to hate themselves and to cut part of themselves off. And... For me, you know, it just was like praying every night, hoping that I would wake up straight and I wouldn't and I'd cry and I would cry myself to sleep and very, you know, dismal, sad existence. Um, But also there was a lot going for me. Uh, I don't want to negate that I had a family that loved me and that probably would have been there for me had I felt safe enough to share. But in this system in which they found themselves, which was the same one I was in, they weren't really talking about it either because they didn't have need to. And the world had said like there's one in every a hundred or 500 or whatever is gay. And so uh, the queer community believed that. And I think that was a strategy to silence us and to ostracize and to separate us so that if we were to come together and realize, wait, there's so many more queer people in the world that we would all do what we're doing now, which is to come out and say, me too almost it's a me too movement of the queer community saying like i suffered from this is the structures of society that were naturally uh put in place over hundreds of thousands of years Um, and i think at that age too you know your inclination is to want to not just to belong but also to like to protect your family your pod yeah if you feel like your circumstances were they to become public would would somehow put your family in a situation of discomfort or angst or ostracizing it then your nature as a child is to say well i can't do that to them i have to protect them from what i'm capable of and right and so you create this sort of like hierarchy like the family dynamic is greater than my own personal needs so my job is to just keep quiet so that the family dynamic can continue in this way. Right. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot of self-preservation, if you will. Self being me, uh, my family, that's all one version, you know, of self, especially as a child, like belonging is key. And so, I mean, children, regardless of sexuality, are trying to fit in uh throughout their formative years. I mean, I think that's a a given and we all experienced that. Um, And I think adding sexuality on top is just like a icing on the cake, especially in the late nineties, early two thousands where, you know, gay is the token insult. And so those years, I, there's part of it that's just kind of blacked out in my brain. A lot of memories that I'm like, I don't remember, but there's a lot of highlights that I wonder you know, dressing up with my sisters and my sister's clothes. And I loved playing Barbie. Like I was obsessed with Barbie, Polly Pockets, playing house, teacher, uh, attaching leashes to our belt loops to be lions and tigers. You know, these existences that were anything other than um, my current existence. It was maybe a form of escapism, but it was also fun and it was fantasy. And 
um, you know, even the Barbie movie talks about <laughs> like where it's like there's the Jungian philosophy would say like we put our shadow self onto something else that can bear it, bear the weight. And so like the queer part of me, I could not hold. So I put that, I think, on the Barbie world and she could fall in love with a man. And so like, why not be her? Because it's socially acceptable uh, to live in her world and to fall in love and to have a husband because at 12 years old, I was already wanting that, you know, like, and counting down the days till 21, I thought I would need to be married by 21. So like, I would be like, Nate, no worries. You still have eight years. Like, no, don't stress about your life. Like, you know, self coaching myself at 13, like, there's time before you have to get married. So enjoy your youth, like, and which is kind of wild to think about being like a middle schooler, <laughs> trying, <laughs> trying to to coach and to teach myself in ways that normally a parent would because you would feel hopefully safe enough to say here's all that I'm dealing with can you help me process since you've lived more life than me I don't think that that fully answers how I got to today but that's a little bit of the like (laughs) and I did find uh you know a, a friend in high school that I we realized you know closetedly that we were both gay and um that was helpful um, to have at least one outlet or a way of, of being that felt like the fullness of me, yet still fully embodied in shame and thinking I was the scum of the earth. But I think it was helpful nonetheless. What is your age? Um, I'm 33. Okay. Okay. So you were in high school in the 2000s, early 2000s? Yes, 2004 to 2008. Okay. Gosh, and I feel like I don't know was it still so shameful then you know I like when I think back I feel like oh you know homosexuality was becoming a little bit more accepted at that point but um, my reference to that is so different from yours like okay well gay people are on tv now right so like it must be okay but right to be like an actual gay man gay child growing up I'm sure it still felt very very like no this is still not cool Yeah, I think we have to go back to like Pensacola. Um, I think that probably in New York City, San Francisco, those are places where queer for the straight guy, things like that are like exciting and big cities are like, and they're trickling down via like the television. But the reality uh, of their existence is merely that they're one in a million again, right? Like there are very few of us that are gay and those are a few of them. And like... And I say that because growing up, I remember in high school thinking like, no one's gay. Like I'm the only, like, there's like three goth kids that are gay or, you know, weirdos because we like place that nomer on them because it felt more comfortable. And I thought, well, I'm, I don't, and also like, I wasn't incredibly flamboyant. And so like, I thought like, I don't fit this mold that they say that I am. So maybe I'm the one, I'm the only one who's like, there's the few that are gay in high school of 2000. There's four gay people. And then there's me who's like, I don't really fit the mold in any way, but I still am. And yeah, back then it was, I felt like no one was like in my head and maybe obviously there were, but, um, and then I think too about back then, like the AIDS epidemic and how most gay people, like that's a total different story, but my uncle died of AIDS in the eighties. And I feel so much spiritual connection to him. I feel like I talk to him, hear from him in many different ways. And those mentors, those realities of existence were wiped out. And so some large percent, uh, I'm not want to make up a number were killed by the AIDS epidemic who would have been mentors or people representation for what a queer, happy, loving life looked like. And so because of their lack of existence, I think people could make up a narrative or a story that was queer people are gross, overly sexual, like they, they can't form a family just to bring it back to that family element that feels so hard or was so hard for me to kind of wrap my head around thinking it would ever be a possibility for me. I feel like all of those, first of all, that's just like to echo what Aaron said, you are so poignant in the way that you speak and it's just really beautiful. Um, and I've already cried three times. I don't know if y'all could tell is why I'm having glasses on because I just, I don't know. I just, your story is that moving um, for me as somebody that did have gay friends. And I think 
maybe I think my view of it is a little bit different too, because I have several gay family members and I have, I grew up in a household where I was a ballet dancer. And so really interesting to me to hear your version of this. Like, you know, I'm two years, I graduated in 06. So I'm two years older than you. It's just such a different world, I think, than what I knew growing up. And I, I'm lucky that I think I had a lot of exposure. I traveled a lot and, you know, went to a lot of ballet camps. And like, so I did just have a different exposure to that world, to theater and to love and to all the different versions of family that can be. And it just, and as somebody in Pensacola, I think I was almost even sheltered from your reality you know, because it just was such a big thing in my world. And it's just, I don't know, it just breaks my heart that that was what your experience was. And I don't know, I'm not really sure where I'm going with this. I just wanted to see. Yeah, but I think it's drawing a light on the difference and the nuance. Like Pensacola experience is not monolithic and I don't think any experience really is. So it's hard to, that's why I think there's a beauty in the, age that we're in of subjectivity it seems like people are really telling stories more from i like this is my experience and it doesn't mean it's the experience of every person and you know there are gay people who love sex and have sex every day of the week with different people and like that's cool for them like i don't doesn't like and it doesn't make me less gay or them more gay like i think that there is a plethora of existence like for me like I think it's alarming to a lot of people that I'm gay and Christian but to me Christ means something totally different than most Christians you know that I come across and I think yeah that that lack of continuity of experience um, even in the same location is is important to note for sure definitely I think I would love to hear about that about your relationship to Christ and how in Christianity and how you got to that point after your upbringing with, you know, your childhood and all that, like, how did you get to now? How did you reconcile? How did you find that in your life? Yeah, a long, a long road. But, you know, in college, I was heavily involved in campus ministry, trying to do the right thing, dating girls, telling girls that I was gay and, but I wanted to follow Christ, these types of things, Um, really checking off for me in my head, like all the boxes, like I was like, I want to make sure that I've tried. Like if there is a way in which I can try, even to the point that someone tried to exercise me one time and what? I was like, sure. Wow. I was like, try it. Like, and, and me and my brain, like not in this heavy, crazy, dark way, but it turned out to be like hilarious to me. I mean, they were like, <laughs> tell me name. And I was like, I don't hear a name. And they were like, <laughs> no you hear a name I know you do and I was like well, I, I'm thinking the name Eric but that's just because that's my roommate and like and they're like no his name is Eric and I in my head I was like hold it together and they do not laugh like oh I'm like not Eric that's my roommate <laughs> so, but I say all that some of it's funny some of it's not but like to like say that I tried to um reconcile anything I could like if I if it was a matter of needing to step out in tangible faith meaning like date a woman be honest and vulnerable with her but you know to put it politely my body didn't care um and was saying it was like I'm not into her and I was like yeah my me neither so um obviously connective friendship but so I did all that I was a missionary uh, overseas and then I, I finished uh two years I was in China and then I traveled the world with the Jesus film project recording the language like into different languages after that I decided like I had to be done um with ministry that I just felt within me like I'm just like I'm gay and I'm Christian and this world that I'm living in doesn't support the flourishing of both so I quit and I started working at the Apple store and that was kind of like my gay awakening. Like people knew I was gay, uh, 20 to like 25, but like in a way like I'm gay and I don't want to be, which is, was very different than I'm gay. And that's part of me. Um, and so I came out to my parents at 20 and just cried with them. I was like, I'm like, I'm like, you know, this shame. I'm so sorry that I'm me. 
like like and they were like yeah um, we they were so sweet and we're like yeah we'll we're with you we wish you told us sooner but that was all in a framework of, of me hating that part of myself as well so it was more acceptable easily understood so around 26 i like had the first i had a first kiss with a guy and that sent butterflies and that reminded me and of all the movies I've ever watched. And I was like, oh my God, this is the feeling that everyone has been like talking about. It's in books and movies and Disney and blah, blah. And I was always like, I don't get it. I like kiss people. It's a chore. Like, I'm like, I don't enjoy romance. Like, but yet I feel like I want it. And so that first kiss for me was like kind of this lit the fire of exploration. Um, and and exploration more so of like yes physically but more so of like is is this like does god love this part of me like is there a part is there a a way in which i can care for this part of me rather than i always had this image of me holding it out like a like dirty trash bag or a dog poop or something like gross like my homosexuality that is and so i started to realize that that truncation or like imagine like cutting your foot off like and then being like i'm gonna live life normally like no you, like, you can't uh, and that's kind of what i realized was happening um and there was also another profound moment i mean there's so much i could say I'm trying to like narrow it down but with my sister and she was telling me about some problems in her life and she looked at me and she said, I feel like when I tell you the pain and the problems in my life, that they're not pain to you. Like you don't, you don't care about them. And that woke me up because I was like, they don't feel like you're having problems with your husband. Okay. Like I can't even have a husband. So of course I don't think that that's a problem. Like, and then I realized, which is prevalent in culture that the agency is within me to make the change, to be able to care and to heal that part. So that that part's screaming out in pain and asking for nurturing and care and like, as if it's a wound, then if I don't care for that, that's on me. Like, and so I just kind of realized that in that moment, like I wasn't available for anyone because I was so self-consumed with this thing that I was not willing to accept. And I'm trying to, you know, pair it to today. I, it's, there's so many moments I could speak of that woke me up to if you i hate to quote rupaul but if you can't love yourself how the hell are you gonna love somebody else like for like, sure you can't okay. and i think the bible is clear on that like like love your neighbor as yourself is like is what rupaul is you know put into her own words and i think that's paramount i mean i guess that kind of arrives at this christ figure for me which is someone who took society and the cis heteropatriarchy, the racist society and flipped it on its head. I mean, back then it was Canaanites and Samaritans, but today it's like black people, it's Mexicans, it's people coming across the border into our land. It's like this exceptionalism, this uh, like that we have something, we deserve this life and you don't because of where you were born or how much money you have or how much power you have or the color of your skin or the sex or the like, the gender or whatever the sexuality that that discounts or like disqualifies you from what i would call the imaho dehi which is you know it's the image of god that everyone to me bears um regardless of and including of their gender sexuality race ethnicity and that to me is what christ is all about is like these systems of power flipping them you know, disrupting the powerful and the people with money and saying the poor, the kingdom of God belongs to the poor. Like that statement is revolutionary. Like, or that like, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me or I was naked and you didn't clothe me. Like that means that Jesus Christ is the unhoused person on, on the corner. Like you want to meet Jesus, like don't go to church, like go talk to the homeless person for an hour and you will learn more of Jesus or the queer person or the yeah, the gay person kicked out of their home or the person who suffers from disease um, in the hospital, like, which is kind of what led me to chaplaincy is like, I have never found an understanding of love and connection and life, which I would also name as Christ as I have in the hospital, because most people there are hurting. Um, 
and are poor financially as well as um, poor health um, and often poor in spirits because people are not present for them. So when I was growing up, my family was not particularly religious. Like we were not church members. We didn't belong, but we were Christians, you know, and I went to all these different churches and all of these different types of Christian churches with my friends, you know, growing up. And I remember always feeling like, okay, here are these people and they're telling me like, this is who Jesus is. And these are the rules. And you come to this place where we call you out. Like, that's what it felt like. Like going to church was like, okay, we go to the church so that they can remind us of all the bad things that we're doing and they have to keep going over the rule. And it didn't ever feel like sanctuary to me. It felt more like, okay, it's time for the reckoning. And I would go to the different churches and kind of look at the similarities and then look at the differences and be like, well, this one's definitely more appealing. It seems to work better for me. But then I'd go to this one and think, oh, but they really seem to have it figured out. Like they're really doing the rules here. And it just created so much inner conflict. I could not figure out how I was supposed to embrace it because it didn't really feel inspiring. It did not feel warm and fuzzy. It felt like this version of Christ was really intimidating and scary. And I carried that for a long time. And I think it was in my mid twenties. I had kind of said, okay, like I'm done with church, no more church, this guy, this whole thing, like it's just not working for me. And then I traveled a little bit and I went to college in a bigger city and I got to start meeting other cultures and other worlds. And I met this wonderful guy who was in one of my classes in South Florida, who was a Hindu. And I was fascinated by Hinduism. Every day I would sit next to him and I'd bring him an apple and I'd eat an apple and we'd sit in the auditorium waiting for our class. And I would just ask him questions like, why are there so many gods? What is it with the color? Why can't we eat meat? Like, and every day he'd be like, okay, Aaron. And he'd answer all my questions. And it was, it was just like enthralling. And it, it dawned on me that spirituality and even Christianity is not, this is the guy and this is the book and this is where you go. Like that it was all interpretation that every one of these different groups had interpreted their version of this in some way. And that none of it was like the hard and fast truth. Like the Bible didn't fall from the sky written. It was written by people. Right, and, it and was, translated it. Right, like, and it depended on sleep and like I don't want to tra- like do this anymore. It's not like there was a printing press. Like like these people passing this down over and over and over, and then across languages and like the translation's only as good as a translator. And like, what if the translators are tired or the translators are racist? Like, then of course that's going to come across. Like like right. Like it just dawned on me that this is written by humans. The whole thing is a translation of what they thought they saw or what they thought was happening or what they thought was the right version of the story. And that it was different depending on where you were and what, you know, what time and who was the, who was the king at the time and what was the ruling party and what was their, like everything. And then I felt like, oh, I get to create a version of Christ that makes sense for me. And I get to create a version of church that doesn't have anything to do with those walls and those windows and that sanctuary where we have to go and like, you know, bow and I, all of that ceremonial thing, like so uncomfortable to me. And it was like, I feel closest to God when I'm outside, when I'm out in the woods, when I'm taking a walk and when I'm like in the world is when I feel the most godly. And it took like permission to say, that's okay. If that's the way that you do spirituality, that's okay. It wasn't okay with my family. And when I like made this public declaration, like, Hey, I'm not really doing the JC the way that you are. So you can leave me out of all that because there was like, you know, there was this sort of Southern Bible culture. It was the time of email and we were getting emails all the time with this like propaganda. And I was like, Hey, this is not my guy. This isn't my version. And this isn't my guy. And it was a, it felt like a real ripple effect, but it's funny because over time it felt like my, my family wanted to 
not to point out, you know, that I was doing it wrong or whatever, but I think they were impressed at the way that I was leading my life, despite the fact that I wasn't doing it according to the book of the rules. And I was like, cause that's feels so unnecessary to me. Like Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism, like we're all talking about such similar things about like being good. Right. And I don't need all of that to figure out how to be good. Yeah. And in fact, I feel like sometimes it's not really teaching you how to be good. It's teaching you a lot about how to not <laughs> like, right and like and how to other people how to just create differences oh that's not our church so those people are different from us well but you're still doing christianity so what does it matter if it's the church across the street like i just couldn't i couldn't do it so i'm like personally really fascinated at listening to you talk because i felt like even you know as a cis hetero white girl in the south like i had a perfect place in society and i still had to go okay how do i make this work for me and it was a struggle so i can't imagine what it felt like to be you or like you know other people that we've referenced that had even less on the totem pole of society right yeah there's so much there that you know spawned thought but one of them was that like you were talking about like, like going to church and that feeling of like you were brought there to re- be reminded of how terrible you were. Yes. There's part of that, that I no longer believe. Uh, I believe in the goodness of humanity and that when God made humans, they were made good and that society, um, you know, has their, it's, it's weight on their life that causes. And I just wanted to highlight that in church, I always wondered why it was that it was like, oh, they're drinking. And it was this othering, this grossness, get out, like, why are they a drunk? Rather than why are they drinking? Mm -hmm. Why why do they feel the need to be drunk? Why do they feel the need to dissociate from their reality? Like, instead of a a mothering, which we could talk about that as God as mother, which has been, you know, very pivotal for me in my life, that nurturing, that sweetness, that like, come under my wing, what is ailing you that you feel like you don't want to be here on this earth as in your, in your uninebriated mind and you could fill that in the blank for anything uh you know greed uh excessive hoarding all of that like what is that doing for you it where do you not feel secure why do you need to have so many things so that you feel secure when you when the security should be within you know and that's very hindu as well that detachment from your your practice like yes i'm going to do this and care but i'm not doing it for men to see i'm not doing it to gain wealth i'm not doing like i'm doing it merely because it is my part in this ethos of existence uh kind of um which i didn't experience in church i i I experienced a lot of shame um which it sounds like was similar for you like that like yeah, she does this and they do that. And she cheated on her husband. And it's like, well, why? Like, like, why can't we press into the the hardships in people's lives that are producing, you know, if you want to call it bad fruit. Um, but maybe she left them because she needed to. Like, right. <laughs> right. Maybe they're drinking because they need to. Like, there's not, there's some support structure that's not there for them. And, and, you know, growing up, you know, middle, mostly middle class and relatively poor, I can't imagine how, like, as the as the supports fail you, what you turn to, and actually speaking of, I just read this book called Sex Working in the Bible, which is an incredible book, and it talks about all the imagery of prostitutes throughout the Bible. And then this writer, um, her last name is Ibsen, Avaran Ibsen, she interviews a bunch of sex workers and asks them how they interpret these passages of the Bible. And one of the key takeaways that I I got from it was so, so profound is how does a woman who is giving up her body as a sacrifice for those she loves not represent and is not the same as the Jesus Christ whom you worship? And that blew my mind that to think of, you know, these whores and sex workers and sluts, like these things that are so derogatory and people use as casual insults similar to you know, gay and faggot in in the 90s and 2000s, like, that's like the token insult, right? Like, whatever, whore, you know, like, 
crazy slurs like that. And to think, no, these women are, many of them are, uh, this is the only way for them to make it and, and for them to provide for their family. And they are offering their body. You think they want to sleep with the X, Y, and Z person? <laughs> like, no, like, but society has, has not given them the support that they need. And if they do, I mean, I don't want to speak for sex workers. If they do want to sleep with people and that's their favorite way to make money, then good that's on right. that interpretation really uh, expanded my mind to say, yeah, they look more like Jesus Christ than the people who are in the church with excess money and excess and doing nothing to care for those around them, you know, which these days is hard. Cause I, I mean, I haven't found one that I feel like is, you know, is flipping the script and is my professors say praxis over theology, praxis informs theology. So you go and you live and that informs your belief. Your beliefs should not inform how you live. And uh, I think that that's something that's been big for me, like in my own internal life, like me caring for that, that part of me that I cut off has helped me to care more for people, which must be closer to Christ. So I just follow the path of experience rather than theology, or at, at least I let them talk to each other. Like we've removed experience, it feels like from the church. And I think that that's where there's a lot of frustration. Like it sounds like you have, and many other people have, it's like, Where's the honest experience? Well, and I think that that begs like a whole different set of questions, like politics and social constructs and how that plays into, particularly right now. I mean, I think the two biggest things on the news, on Fox News every day is uh, women's rights, abortion, and LGBTQ+. Plus, like, I think that that is just two of the big heavy hitters right now. And for me, I just can't. I have such a hard time believing that that's the reality that we live in. Um, you know, as somebody that's had seven miscarriages and seven subsequent abortions, and I just don't understand, like, what are your thoughts on, like, how politics play into all of this and, like, how the current, I guess, mainstream media is influencing people and creating this black and white world where there's no nuance and no love and just I'm right and you're wrong and I just don't get it sorry I can get heated and like get really outside I, and I want like the imagery of this to me Brian and I really have a lot to say about this but the imagery of this like God's army of gun toting quote Christians who are standing at the border Oh turning God. away the people desperate for help and chanting to pray for the unborn. Like, I can't do it. I don't understand how this version has become the dominant one, at least the way that it is portrayed in particular media and even politically when we see like turnout in states and what topics, like I, I don't understand where this came from and you need to explain all of it <laughs> explain everything so obviously i have a limited understanding like any human but my i mean it's just very difficult to find a, the best way to articulate but i feel like white christian nationalism is a scary structure um one that determines what is decent and indecent uh what is deserving or undeserving of help or care um you know even our healthcare system is so incredibly destructive to poor people. Um, the border is absolutely horrendous. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that is making money off of, of keeping people detained. Um, and I think that sadly, in my perspective is that both sides, Democrat and Republican are run by the 1% and the people that their money and their power, and they will do anything, including creating divisions and this is biblical, it seems. We're all sheep. So we hear something, we believe it. We follow the voice that says, you know, like gays are grooming, or we follow the voice that say like all conservatives want to kill every gay person. And then it's like, we're both believing. And then we, this is huge divide. And then we're like, and then they get their votes because there's something so uh, divisive, something so staunch to stand upon. Uh, and I'm not, I believe that both of those realities exist. Um, it's those, like, 
Republicans are on one side and Democrats are on the other side. And we're playing this massive game of monkey in the middle. Mm -hmm. They're um, volleying the ball back and forth to each other, but keeping it away from everybody. So yeah, you're has like, the access. Play, like, and they're like, your vote matters. And I'm like, but if I vote other than Democratic or Republican, it doesn't matter. So how does my vote matter then if I want something other than what the two of you are putting out? And that seems to exist as a whole, right? Like the binary of male and female, like, no, there's an in-between and like the world loses their mind, like gay and, and straight. And it's like, no, there are in-betweens and mm -hmm. there's all asexuality and demisexuality and bisexuality. And, and it's like, this fluidity is, I think showing what's coming to the surface, which is a new consciousness, uh, a way of, of, of being that is true to who you are. And I hope that eventually the voting practices and politics would also show that, but I doubt that there will ever, I don't know, it just feels like there will never be some type of in-between um, or some way of caring or prioritizing um, the marginalized. I mean, I love Marianne Williamson personally. Um, I don't think she'll get elected president, but her whole premise is on love and restructuring the system towards towards caring for those who are in need. And, you know, I think if we're going to go biblically, which ironically all these powerhouses want to go, then like sell everything and give to the poor. I mean, like that was what Jesus is told him, is told the rich young ruler is stopping him from understanding the kingdom of God. And it's more difficult for the, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And to me, what is the kingdom of heaven is love. Like it is empathy. It is caring for your neighbor. It is like, it's difficult when you're rich. And even I am very rich in the world standards. And I see so many ways that it stops me from caring for my neighbor. Like, and I can't imagine when you feel like you have all your needs met that like, how could you understand what it's like to need to sell your body to, to provide for your children, things like that. And that I think ties into BB, your question, like about abortion, things like that. Like, I think, first of all, I just need to say, no one wants to get a fucking abortion. And I guess you have to bleep that out. Like no one is like, yes, let me pulverize my body. I think about like, I would like jokingly, made a comment i was like yeah because all women want to go to brunch and get get an abortion it's like brunch and abortion like that's what we're trying to do like what and obviously there's a small percentage of, of, of rape and incest which is repulsive and and gross and there that's a different story but the majority of of women who are having sex and finding that they're pregnant um and we're talking consensual sex i think so I've heard, you know, like, again, I don't want to like write a, a general statement for everyone. Most women who I know who have had abortions have mourned and mourned and mourned the loss of the need to get an abortion. Also, all of those women are very, very early on in their pregnancy. And, you know, they're thinking that women are like eight months pregnant and going to get an abortion. And obviously there are some, but few and far between. Those are the women that learned late in their pregnancy that they have their baby is sick or that, you know, those are, most of those women are women who have already started on their nursery, who have wanted and hoped for a baby and that they found out news late in their pregnancy, which often happens after 20 weeks, that their baby is sick and they have to make that decision. You know, is it better to bury your baby now or is it better to let that baby suffer in the real world and then bury them later? Like I just, like those are the women that are having abortions late term. And I just hate that that narrative has been so misconstrued by, you know, conservative people who just have nothing better apparently to talk about than that. So many living people in great need. I mean, that's Thanks. kind of what we've been talking about. Like, and where is the help for them? But yet my greatest question, I guess, to make this more succinct is people will say I'm pro-life. People will say I'm Christian. People will say all types of things about what they are. And my question I always respond with is how? How? How are you a Christian? 
How, who are you helping? Who is the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed that you spend time with? How are you giving your money, your time, your talents, your existence towards the interconnectedness and love of all humankind? Like, if you're pro-life, are you adopting? Are you fostering? Are you giving money towards like, like the women who want to keep their kids but don't have the resources to fund a life of a child? Like, how? And then because we criticize them when they need help. Right. Our words you shouldn't have so many children if you can't afford to have them, but we're not going to give you any opportunities to make any of those decisions. We're just right. going to shame you right. and try right. to take the resources away because obviously you're a bad person. Like it's bananas. We're not going to help you have your child, but like you have to have it. Like, right. And I think about like, cause obviously my Sam and I um, have been, you know, active um, family hoping to adopt for eight months now. And I, without a doubt, can say that it is one of the most for-profit businesses masking right. something else. I mean, it's unreal, the situations that we've been presented with. I mean, first of all, to adopt a baby, it's about $50,000. Like, I right. just can't get over that. Like, I can't. And obviously, we're willing to pay any cent you know, to bring a baby home, like, or to have the opportunity to raise a baby, like, we will do right. whatever we have to do. But the leaps and the bounds. And like, I think about all of the amazing people to raise a little human, and they're outpriced, because they could provide a warm and loving home for a child. But they don't have $50,000 in cash sitting around to adopt a baby. And I just think that that is pure evil I like that crushes me to think about like just that you're alienating a huge percentage of the world that would be incredible parents because they don't have fifty thousand dollars to pay cash up front like I just like blows my mind blows my mind yeah I agree I think that that is also super anti-christ like I think like adoption is the spirit in which we have all like if you're a Christian believe that we exist which is to say like and Jesus talks more about money than anything else and I that is to say you can't serve God and money and if you equate God with love which is what I do like you can't serve love and money and I think that is where our system is failing and that's why I love Marianne Williamson because her key tenant is like money is robbing us of a profound communal existence like rampant individualism in the united states and rampant greed is destroying this country and i think that those are the the gods the true gods that most that it seems the country worships like greed and and power and it's disrupting meaningful existences like you and sam's of of like having a feasible way of, of, of having a child, like, and a child who also equally wants to be in your life. Like, that's the irony, right? It's like, like, that's all they want is to be loved. I just, there's like, you're both coming together. And then like this, these systems just block it. And it's almost like, that's even how my existence was growing up. Like, it's like, oh, I'm coming together. I love who I am. And it's like this thing that says no. And that thing whatever that thing is is what i think it is all about disrupting like how do we like fight against the thing that's stopping love from communing with itself which we're all representations of i mean that's also very buddhist philosophy that like we are all one thing like like you are a part of all of this and i think that's where a lot of disconnect in our existence is causing so much chaos i think the world is hurting like everything is individual even in our groceries like if you think about that continuity of that metaphor it's like everything is packaged and separated and like our hands are not in the dirt anymore like we're not connected to the produce and the fruit and the and the sun and the sky and our neighbors and like i don't know what it will take truly to to bring back that that oneness of existence which i think is what seems to be a theme of what we're talking about like yeah you want to be one with a child and there's a way that it feels like society says no and I want to be oneness with my like in one like oneness with myself and it feels like society is still trying to say no to that and I think love is the yes right like we're as difficult as it is every day to be like 
I'm going to keep fighting for it, even though it feels like insurmountable in a way. Bryant and I trying to build the fertility resort and to create this business to help, you know, to help people who are already in very treacherous, difficult circumstances and in trying to build a business, you know, it is business and we understand that, but it's a constant barrage of finances and, you know, it's all so focused. And so we have to sort of constantly say, the purpose of this is not to try to become rich people. We intend to have a product that makes money because that's what business is, you know, because we want it to be our full-time jobs, but we can't put the finances at the forefront. Like the finances can't be the thing that's driving the train. The business has to come from a deep impassioned desire to help people have a better experience. But everything in the ethers and everything in social media and all the, it's just always sort of hurting you back towards like, well, you'll earn big bucks. And if you do this, then it's like, okay, wait a minute. And that's why we, we had this timeline. And then it was like, this timeline is arbitrary to build something worth building. It's going to take us day by day, just doing it and not sacrificing ourselves and not sacrificing our families to try to get to the goal of being big business people. And it's just like, this is huge push. And so we have this conversation probably once a week, like it's okay. Our timeline belongs to us and the product is for the people that we're trying to serve. And let's just like, let that speak for itself. And it's hard. Yeah, that is it, right? Like consumerism, time, money, all of these things that we're being tricked by, but like, and I don't want to negate the fact that so many people need money. Like there are so many people who need money. And so I don't, there's a privilege in saying that we're tricked by that. I understand that. But also the heart of what you want to do is what matters, right? Like, and I have to remind myself of that. Well, in what ways can I cut back in my life so that I can have more time and space to do the things that I care about. Like, instead of like buying more clothes, shorts, going out for a drink, if I cut those back, that allows more space to breathe. Like, and I think that there's a, in the consumerism of the United States, it's very difficult, uh, especially in the money focused world we live in, like to not focus on that. Um, but allow it to be the means to the end, not the end. And it feels like most, so many people are like, I want money, but really like, so you can do what? Like, why, why do you want money? Like money is actually a non-entity. You want money because you need food or you want money so that you have more time to create art. You want money. So fill in the blank. And I think that that's really a great way of seeing your, your business, right? Like years and years ago when Facebook was new and novel, somebody posted, Build a life you don't need a vacation from. And I've really, really tried to adopt that. Like if the whole point is to work, 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 save, 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 save money so you can go on a big fancy vacation to get away from the life that you've created, like that feels so self-defeating. Like I want my life to be so steeped in joy and community and time and space that I'm not constantly trying to get away from it. And just, yeah, like how do you redistribute your time and your energy and your resources. I don't often need more resources. What I often really, really want is more time. I think that that's just the main part of this, right? Is that most people value or say that success is measured by the amount of money that's in your bank or the amount of power that you have when success should be measured by like the love that you have in your life and how much you want to wake up every day and enjoy the time that you have here on earth. I think that's a successful person, right? Somebody that has a community that has love and not the other way around. But unfortunately, I just think in the United States of America, that's not what is marketed toward to us. We are marketed that success comes from money and it comes from power. And there is no option, right? I just think it's a whole different messaging scheme that needs to be done. 
like could you imagine if the news was an outlet through which opportunity was made available to to give to nonprofits to like figure out how to volunteer to figure out who is present in your community doing what and like the goodness of society and uh, ways that you could plug in instead of like this whole division like like it's hard to even think about a world in which that exists but like when I start to it gets me like excited to think like I volunteered with Sunday's Child for a year and I learned of so many nonprofits in this city that are doing such good work and I felt so much more alive in that year knowing of what all the good was that was going on around me and more apt to do the good myself than the weight that can come with the news that is today and all that's presented on it regardless of the side of politics like yeah, I think that it would be a beautiful world if the news was something different than it was. Yeah, not just a like a 24-hour news cycle of doom scrolling. Yeah, fear-mongering, like, please leave me alone. I, like, we have enough of that in our own brains. Like, I know. we don't need something helping that. On our phones and everywhere else. Like, I mean, it's constantly at our fingertips. Like, just the tragedy that is life around us. It's crazy. I've been really replacing my news time with music time. It's much better for my soul. My husband really loves the news, so we do have to we have to meet halfway sometimes. But instead of having the news on at dinner, we put music on and the whole house changes. Well, Nate, we have taken up so much of your time today and it's just been such a beautiful conversation. Like I'm just, I don't know. I just think you're wonderful and I am so happy that you spent some time with us today and shared your story and all the things. Um, do you have any yeah. closing thoughts? <laughs> closing thoughts. Um, I don't know if I have anything profound um, other than what's been helping me is to find time alone, to sit in the quiet, to listen to that inner voice within you, whatever you want to name it, call it. Um, I think that that inspired thought is probably so much better for the world than anything you could probably gain from outside. Like, um, I'm not nature. Yes. Uh, I think there's beautiful, but the world has so many things to tell you, but I think that each of us has something within us that we were here to do. Um, and I think when you find that, and if you find that, like, that's the greatest journey of life. So I guess my closing thought would be the news and everything is scary out there. So spend some time with the, the silence within you to figure out what you're here for and find people that will help you to accomplish it. I absolutely love that. Um, well, thank you so much. And if you could tell our listeners where to find you on social media, if you would like them to know, you're an amazing artist and we didn't even talk about that, which is like blows my mind. Um, yeah, um, I mostly am just on Instagram. It's at nate.geo, um, play on that geo. I do a lot of nature art. Uh, I believe that the earth is speaking and we need just time to sit and listen. So that's kind of the the premise through which I create, I have a lot of fun and play with art and I write on there as well. Um, so I think that that's probably the best way to find me. Um, NateGEO.co is my Etsy site. Uh, if you just wanted to check out some prints and stuff. I love um, Nate Geo. That's super clever. <laughs> that's great. It happened with my missionary days. I traveled all around. And so that's where I got the tag. And then I started creating art and it became this perfect confluence of Nate Geo. It is. Well, thank you again, Nate. This has been a joy. And I just, yes, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I was super excited to, to talk about it and um, join you in the endeavors of what it means to exist in the world today. Awesome. Thank you for your time and your beautiful articulations. Thank you. The Protected Space podcast is hosted by Aaron Attaway and Bryant Liggett and is brought to you by The Fertility Resort. To learn more about us, head over to thefertilityresort.com and give us a follow on all social platforms at Protected Space Pod.